This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way, except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. Yes. Tell me, does do you do you feel held by this by this wonderful podcast that by, we do in our 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 fans? By the oh, do I feel held by our fans? Without a doubt, in my mind. If you were to describe our relationship with fan, our fans or our listeners, fans feels like a weird word. Uh, if you were to describe the dynamic with a visual metaphor, would you also like I would describe it as? Uh, you have been named the Mayday Princess and have been vaulted on a kind of palanquin and be carried around while oh. your uh, 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 boyfriend inseminates a girl and then I, gets killed. I mean, I like you had you had me, you had me. I yeah. I lost. also I had myself at the first part and then I <laughs> I kind of realized you kind of lost me in the second part there. But I definitely feel held. Okay, good. Which like the more I say, it sounds like more gross but i mean it in the best I mean, possible I think way it, it is also kind of gross kind of yucko listen we're gonna live hi guys this is a great american scream i'm devin Wright. <laughs> i'm adam o'connell and in this episode we are going to talk about uh the films of ari aster which is very exciting <laughs> but that does mean that for most of this kind of 40 minutes to an hour we're going to kind of live in this space in this kind of weird space yeah where stuff is simultaneously very uh Good and interesting and compelling and also a, a little know? yucko. But like that's um, one of the reasons that I think Ari Aster is so good at what he does that. Um, oh, for sure. Because like, OK, so we're going to talk about Ari Aster. And you know how um, a lot of like the, the focus of modern film is on catharsis that like you should feel good when the movie ends, um, even if right. the movie has like, a sad ending, you should take something away from it. Right. And even if it's not like something concrete, it's an um, it's at the very excuse me, at the very least, it's like an emotional catharsis where you leave and you're like, OK, like there's a there's mm -hmm. a conflation of catharsis and satisfaction, I think, a lot in today's discussion of movies. But most movies give you satisfaction, whether or not they give you catharsis. Yeah. Ari Aster said, forget that. <laughs> Don't he said, need. He said, take that, throw that in the trash. Aristotle, who? Don't need like you're gonna I feel throw, catharsis. I take Plato and I throw him in the trash. Sophocles, <laughs> suck my whole butt. You're gonna feel you're gonna feel catharsis, but you're gonna feel bad that you felt catharsis. At the end of the yeah, you're gonna have very complex emotions about the fact that you felt catharsis. Although to be honest, and we'll talk about this, Hereditary, I did, I uh, I felt bad about feeling catharsis. Honestly, Midsummer didn't really feel bad about feeling catharsis. Felt pretty oh, see, good. See, I felt like the opposite. Okay, we'll talk. We'll talk about that Ooh, because okay, I yeah, did we'll make Devin watch these movies for the first time in preparation for yes. this episode in the span of like a week too. So, yep, <laughs> which is a lot. Yep, yep, yep. Yes, you did. Yeah. So we're going to specifically talk about his two uh, feature film releases: Hereditary, which came out in 2018, and. Midsummer, which came out in 2019. I say Midsummer. I've heard a lot of people say Midsummer. Ari Aster says both. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I say think Midsummer. It can be either. Yeah. I'm just gonna say Midsummer because it is it. It's just kind of easier. Yeah. To um, say, which is fair. He's one of my favorite modern horror directors, alongside like Jordan Peele, and alongside 
films like Get Out and Us, these are like my top five horror films of the last decade. Um, yeah, I think these, along with, like you said, Jordan Peele's stuff, uh, I, I think it's it's been talked about plenty. But if you haven't heard, they, they kind of represent a, a new moment and a new uh, direction for horror movies that uh, I was going to say harken back to some point in the past, but I really think it is a fully new mm-hmm. thing that takes horror film as like what it is, which is, you know, uh, sometimes gory, sometimes silly, sometimes funny, but also elevates it. It is a like, they're just, they're so good. They're so good. Yeah. I think the closest thing I can compare it to would be something like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist um, with those yeah, kind of like it, 60s, 70s influences. And they're also, yes. they're so... It's fantasy. It's fantasy horror that is so grounded in reality. Like it's paranormal, paranormal horror that could happen. Yes. I think what I was struck by, and I said this to Ezra after watching Midsummer, was it doesn't like I was going to, as a joke, have the, the joke of this podcast be that my position is that neither of these are horror movies <laughs> like that. <laughs> Which is that a take not, about these. Yeah. And people said it about Get Out as well less so us Mm -hmm. um but like i they are films and they are suspense films and they are like but they don't they don't do like your your comparison to rosemary's baby and those kind of things is totally on in some ways but then in some other ways like there's a commitment that rosemary's baby has to it's just like wrought satanism (laughs) that like midsummer has to its to its uh cult neo-paganism yeah Right, but I feel like Rosemary's Baby has an opinion about the Satanism that is pretty clear okay, in the yeah. in the filmmaking, and in Midsummer, it feels like it is just being presented. Like, yeah, it is like not only is it only just being presented, but the like you could through a lot of analysis try to find out what Ari Aster's or the other filmmakers' opinions are about what they're talking about, but instead of like f- framing the movie around that, they frame it around the characters that they built and how they feel about them, but they don't all feel the same way. It is really just, it is, it it is a form of storytelling and of character drama that I think horror movies has, if not uh, never had, then has definitely strayed away from. Yeah. And exactly that. Cause I think one of the things that uh, kind of caused people to say that this, these aren't horror movies or they're like suspense movies is, uh, hugely in the characters because I feel like a lot of the time when you watch a horror movie you spend a lot of the time criticizing the character's decisions and going like oh if the character had just done this differently and this wouldn't have happened or oh you're so stupid you ran upstairs you should have ran out and that's why you died that never happens in any of these movies these characters never make a like a dumb decision or like a a life-ending decision and and like i want to say like this stuff just kind of happens to them but not as in they don't have any agency like this is right. how it was going to shake out for them because of who they right. are as a character not because of dumb decisions that they make yeah and i think uh, like the clearest time that i felt like i was like hey don't do that and we can get into this in the plot summary was mm-hmm. uh the the couple in midsummer who who like try to leave oh yeah yeah, yeah. um which like that's not a bad decision, but splitting up um, and therefore having, uh, I think his name is Simon, mm-hmm. uh, like, quote unquote, be taken to the train station before, uh, before, oh, I'm forgetting her uh, name Connie. too. I'm not going to remember any names. It's Connie. okay. I have them all. <laughs> um, 
that is like a why did you do that thing but it also makes so much sense like mm-hmm. you are freaking out and trying to run away and you like need to go get, grab your bag the other one is uh the the guy who goes into the room with the book oh, and okay. tries to yeah, take that's a picture a, that's a big one that yeah, one yeah. that one is like why did you do that it's a but very straightforward think, kind of dumb horror decision yeah, yeah you don't think i i think there is an argument to be made that it is a bit out of character for him to do that uh with the dynamic they set up between him and uh garbage boy stink man which Christian. is what i'll call the boyfriend yeah yeah um but like it's still a moment that you can justify uh like within the character and the and the story being told which yeah. again it's not it's not something that a lot of other movies do yeah, so before we get too deep into uh, the two films specifically, I want to talk a little bit about Ari Aster as like a person and director and how he got yeah. here. And then also uh, just this episode is going to be like more of a film analysis kind of episode than we usually do. So let us know if you like it and we could do more of these in the future or if you don't like it, For we won't sure. do it again. Um, so yeah, yeah. we'll never do it again. <laughs> let's talk about Ari Aster a little bit. So if you haven't seen his films or heard about him. Uh, he is a director who had his first two feature film releases in the past few years, both Hereditary and Midsommar. And they both just slapped so hard, like that people incredibly just hard. Didn't, they just didn't know what to do with themselves. They were so good. Um, especially, I especially remember when Hereditary came out and people were losing their marbles. But um, so he tends to work pretty closely with the studio A24, which is a, a pretty recent, like newish film distributor known for. Films that air on the surreal and artsy side, they're not like art house films, but they definitely have the inspiration. So um, like Tusk in 2014, which is a human centipede style film about a man who gets turned into a walrus. Um, Great movie. Highly recommend. Uh, Ex Machina in 2015. The Witch in 2016. Another banger of a horror movie. Uh, the Lobster in 2016, which is another a, great movie. Yeah, about a society where if people don't find love fast enough, they get turned into animals. Um, Swiss Army Man in 2016, about a man who uh, befriends a dead body on a deserted island and then uses that body as a multi-tool. And the body is played by Daniel Radcliffe. Also highly recommend. Um, Lady Bird in 2017, The Florida Project in 2017, The Disaster Artist in 2017, and then recently in uh, 2019, both The Lighthouse and Uncut Gems. It's just nothing they, but bangers yeah, yeah we there's a, a people make fun of a24 a lot because they do definitely have a style mm-hmm. uh even though a lot of their movies are disparate in terms of tone and subject matter and and structure all of them have a kind of visual style that's very similar uh and it's kind of a joke to like make fun of like i don't know sophomore film projects as like a24 fodder but like the reason as always, the reason that A24 is made fun of is because it is so successful and all of the movies that they make are, if not, if not like objectively good, at least doing something and doing something very well. Yeah. And I'm uh, sure they've made so some clunkers. Like I just, I literally just oh, picked uh, the, like the films from the list yeah, that the I knew about and love. You, yeah. The, the fact that you only picked the ones you liked or thought were good and there are all of these. Mm-hmm. Like, that yeah. tells you something. They also are behind Euphoria and John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. Um, so Which, yeah. Literally, yeah. So uh, Aster is 34 years old currently and from New York City. Um, and he describes this moment where he fell in love with horror movies that he went to go see the uh, Dick Tracy movie in 1999, when, oh 1990, God. rather, when he was four. And he saw a character fire a Tommy gun with this wall of fire behind him, which is a very A24 shot. Um, and then he ran out of the theater terrified and his mom had to chase him down the street. 
Um, and that's kind uh, of Disney really wanted Dick Tracy to be a big hit, and they, they planned a amusement park ride in uh, in MGM Studios, yeah. and it did not work out. They did do a stage show though, and the villains were walk around characters. Good for them. Terrifying photos online of that, by the way, because they wore these um, they wore these like prosthetic masks that like rubber masks. So like they were kind of art. They were people. They were face characters, but they were kind of articulated. But they also weren't because their faces weren't really moving. Like it worked on stage, but when they walked around the park, it was very frightening. Um, that's not what we're talking about. But fun fact: we should do a uh, <laughs> side note. We should do an episode about scary walk around characters. <laughs> Just uncanny valley. Okay. Um, so yeah, he's uh, got an MFA from the American Film Institute Conservatory. Generally, seems like a cool dude. Um, and after doing a couple of short films, uh, he premiered his first feature film at Sundance, a little number called Hereditary. Uh, Heard of it? So we are going to talk about that one first. Um, Hooray! Obviously, spoilers. And if you haven't seen this movie, I highly recommend watching it first. But a fair warning, it is very dark and very sad. Like, in terms yeah. of tragedy, it's one of the most devastating, not just horror films, but just, like, films I have ever seen. Yeah, I planned on watching it in the order Adam told me, but then when I was in the mood to watch a movie, I wanted to watch Midsummer first because I was excited to, and so I did, and I watched Hereditary second. Don't do that. <laughs> Go the other way around. Do it the other way around. Yeah, I saw um, both of them in theaters, um, which Hereditary in the theater was a wild experience. But so um, Hereditary has been described as a family drama that becomes a horror film or is disguised as a horror film. Like At its core, it's a family drama. Um, yeah, I, I'd just... agree. I think that Midsummer shares that. They both have this kind of energy, and it's why my brain is like, this is not a horror movie. It's like 45 minutes into the dang film, you're like, nothing scary. Like, <laughs> it, it, Ari Aster has this thing in both movies where you are, like, there's terrible stuff that happens. The beginning of Midsummer is, is hor horrible, mm -hmm. but you're sitting there knowing that this is going to freak you out at some point, and that suspense, which he keeps going not only through, like, slightly off uh cinematography or a lot of the time very interesting color grading yeah um like in hereditary it is uh less prominent than in specifically again the beginning of midsummer but hereditary has this thing where the dark shots are graded in such a way that only certain colors are really visible which shouldn't be possible in a dark <laughs> shot but oh it's so good yeah so uh it was released in 2018 and it stars tony collette who it was bonkers that she did not get nominated for an oscar for this movie um i'm mad to this day because people oh, don't appreciate horror my god uh uh yeah alex wolf of the Naked Brothers Very, band. <laughs> of the Naked Brothers band fame. Uh, Alex Wolf, if you're out there, every time I see you on screen, I get slightly angry because I've always had a crush on you. And um, I'm very, <laughs> very mad that you're so successful. But good for you. Um, Millie Shapiro, uh, who actually got a, um, she got a honorary Tony Award for playing uh, Matilda on Broadway. Uh, oh, yeah. I knew I recognized her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's also just very good. Like, uh, and then also uh, Gabriel Byrne as the dad who kind of gets like he doesn't get as much screen time, but his performance yeah. is still like stellar. I think that like our time with you it. was brief. Yeah, <laughs> but we enjoyed it all the same. Um, and it is about a family haunted by a mysterious presence after the death of their grandmother. Um, and Aster calls it a tragedy that curdles into a nightmare, which sounds like appropriate. Yeah, um, it is literally like it starts at tragedy. Mm -hmm. 
like it starts there and yeah. then it gets worse. Which I, I guess. Like, and no, go ahead. That is something that a lot of horror movies don't do because they want a lot of them bank on. And this is not a bad thing. It's done very well, very often. But they bank on the beginning of the movie being normalcy. And uh, a lot of the time, like that first scene gives you something a little bit scary or like sets you up to kind of set up that suspense and be super scary. Uh, the first scene of Get Out is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then bring it way back down to normal. Yeah. Hereditary doesn't really feel like it ever. Now, I'm always yeah, like, yeah. When you start on the level of tragedy that Hereditary does, the only place to go is horror. Like, you can't come back from that. You, you, you can't. You can't. <laughs> you can't. You just can't. Which is why it doesn't. Yeah. So, um, uh, like, yeah. You, you, you might get through the first hour and a half of hereditary thinking it's a tragedy and also kind of a thriller but then the dive the head first nose dive it doesn't to horror in the last like 45 minutes is perfect um and, and it goes fuck wild yeah. like we'll get to it yeah, but, yeah, oh yeah. My God. so it starts off with the the death of the family's grandmother uh annie uh who was played by tony collette her mom um, and Annie is a miniature artist, which gives these film this film all these amazing moments of like how she works. She says she works with the miniatures and she like recreates like the scene of her mom in the hospital and stuff to like give her like she says to like give her an objective view of what happened. And she says that about the tragedy that happens later, too. And it also gives us these awesome shots of like the house looking like a dollhouse and them looking like miniatures at one point we like zoom in on her miniature and then we're like it seamlessly transitions into like being in the actual bedroom oh um, yeah they, like we all we all pooped on tilt shift photography in 2012 which fair because <laughs> it was everywhere and the sherlock opening ruined it and this movie like <laughs> ari aster waited just long enough yeah to be able to do it again and, <laughs> and the i have a thing for movie moments, and you will definitely relate to this, I think, Adam, mm-hmm. that that feel like something, just kind of scenes that feel like you can feel them. The one okay. that I Tactile. have always gotten people to to latch on to is the scene when in Toy Story 2 when <laughs> Woody is being cleaned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The tactile. Like, like... Yeah. You can just feel it, yeah. you know? And all of the, like, all of the scenes where you are seeing, like, miniatures being worked on or miniatures in the th- those feel tactile to me mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah um there's something else i was going to say about it but uh yeah it, um it really gives a sense of like um that these characters are in in this dollhouse or this miniature house because they they're being controlled by an outside force which is exactly what's happening to them spoiler alert um yeah so she's married to steve who is a psychiatrist and they have two kids uh peter who I think is like 15, 16. He's in mid-high school. Uh, and then yeah. Charlie, who is 13. Um, so Peter and Annie and Steve don't feel very saddened by the grandmother's death because they were so kind of detached from her. She was very secretive. Uh, even at the funeral, they say, like, we don't recognize anybody here. Like, we were shocked that so many people came. Um, and there's a reason for that. But Charlie is pretty upset because um, she was her grandmother's favorite. And Charlie's a little, um, a little odd. Uh, she walks around doing this kind of like, like this this clucking noise, and uh, she makes these little like craft sculptures sculptures out of trash, and then she cuts the head off a pigeon in another scene. Uh, you get the idea that something's going on with her, like not. It, it's so it's so well done because it's not even outwardly like evil. You're not like oh she's gonna be like the villain or the demon child, but like there's just something up with her. 
Yeah, and and oh, I'm super quiet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh the the thing about the the film style is that those kind of moments are everywhere. Like that that is definitely the most pronounced. Um is her kind of like offness and you definitely mm-hmm. bump on it a lot, but every character has some moment like that uh where you're like is that wait a sec. Wait, uh, are you uh, Yeah. Are you going to and then the movie just moves on and yeah. it is Oh, it's wild. Um, and then we get one of our first scenes, I think, of how Ari Aster does paranormal horror so well that Annie sees this apparition of her grandmother in Charlie's room. Uh, and it's not like the typical ghost effect of like, oh, it's like some moving apparition or it's like clear or white and blue and kind of like a wisp. It's just like a very still image of her mother barely overlaid in this like dark shadowy corner that goes away when she turns yeah. the light on like if you were watching on a darker screen you wouldn't even notice it was there um yeah which i think is and totally that's one of those the kind of like, thing you'd see in real life like you or you'd think you saw in real life yes exactly and it's like a a use of the film like a use of film technique to be like you know what what these kind of things usually look like on film mm-hmm. and you also know what they're supposed to look like in real life quote unquote and we're gonna like ride that line yeah, which is so cool it's not corny like honestly i think a lot of paranormal horror gets a little corny with the way that it does ghosts and this is totally oh not. for sure um, yeah and and again there's a lot of the only reason that the effect in hereditary works is because for years and years uh, horror movies have unabashedly and and full-throatedly done corny stuff because it is effective. Yeah. It's not that it's, like, bad I love corny or anything, stuff. But it, oh, yeah, corny stuff is great. But, like, the effectiveness of doing this so intelligently and so well. And A24, in general, has a kind of reputation for doing um, very interesting but often uh, uh, – subtle visual effects that are either incredibly effective or purposefully not um like this one is incredibly effective because it is so subtle the kind of opposite end of the spectrum is the head um the the head prosthetics in Mm -hmm. uh midsummer are very much not realistic and that is like worked to the benefit of the film and it it's just it's so good yeah um, so later on, Peter gets invited to a party, um, but he tells his mom that it's like a school barbecue. So she's like, oh, bring your sister. Um, and uh, she's Charlie is, again, just doing this like tongue pop noise that everybody saw in those trailers. Um, so Peter takes her. He gets high at the party. And then Charlie, who has a nut allergy, unknowingly eats a cookie that has nuts in it. And she starts to go into anaphylactic shock. So Peter... Who's high? Tries the worst to, fear of any yeah. person who has a sibling with allergies. Yeah. Um, that's what the horror is so real. Okay, so Peter is high and he's trying to drive her home or drive her to the hospital. Um, and she she can't breathe, so she sticks her head out the window to try and get some air. And then Peter sees a deer in the road and he swerves. And there's a pole next to the road, and this thirteen year old girl gets decapitated by this pole, like thirty minutes Ugh. into the movie. Thir- uh. It like, is, uh, it's, this movie is, uh, 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 it is so, and this is something I I wrote down during Midsummer, and I was like, I hope this is true in Hereditary 2, and it is my, like, main thing about Ari Aster's films, is that the tone, like, people kind of fetishize consistency of tone, or at least uh, consistency of tone changes. Mm-hmm. Ari Aster takes all that, all that crap and throws it in the toilet where it belongs. He, like... <laughs> will shift tones so quickly yeah like it is and it is 
jarring on purpose. It's not jarring in a like unartistic or or poor way. It is so it just hits. Yeah, and I think like oh anaphylactic shock. Okay, that's the thing. Um, okay, this is a crisis. This is like part of the rising action of the rising tension that's going to lead to eventually a really harsh mm-hmm. uh, like horror thing. But no, you get five minutes into the the kind of low tension thing, and she's her head is gone. Yeah, I have never like ever been so shocked by something that has happened in a horror movie like the, now you could feel it in the th- like i wish i could sit in the theater i mean i don't wish because it was so horrible but like to feel it again in the theater this collective audience tension of like oh my god like they just did that and it was horrible um but anyway so peter goes into shock and drives home and doesn't tell his parents because he's in shock and his only uh, his mom only finds out the next morning when she leaves the house and she sees Charlie's decapitated body hanging out the window of the car. And you get this, like, again, Tony Collette leaving it all on the floor, absolutely crushing it um, in this, like, raw, horrendous depiction of grief. And then there's this gutting shot at the funeral. They're lowering her coffin into the ground. And, oh, it's hor- like it's so uncomfortable to sit through, but it's so good. Um, uh, yeah, and, and just I, how I, I don't like tragic it is. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying how tragic it is. Yeah, I I hate squirmy, like embarrassing, kind of like uncomfortable moments in film. Yeah, and too. yet, like things like this that are done so effectively of I told Ezra this, like knowing because of the way the film is written and talked about and and portrayed to you, knowing that you're supposed to feel uncomfortable is like a like a lot of uncomfortable parts in film and TV, especially like comedy, um, kind of is trying to surprise you by making you uncomfortable. Like that's supposed to be something that you feel uncomfortable because you didn't expect it to go this way. This film doesn't do that to you. It literally sets up like this horrible stuff has happened. You've been shocked and now you're going to sit in this feeling and that's what we want you to do. Yeah. And that's okay because this is a movie. It's all play. It's all pretend. doesn't matter. It's a film. Like that is... It's so good. Yeah, and this is where everything starts to unravel both in, like, the family drama and the paranormal aspect of it because, like, so Peter has PTSD from the incident and keeps, like, re-hallucinating it and Annie tries to go to, like, group grief therapy and she can't, but then she meets this other woman named Joan who, like, befriends her and tries to comfort her. There's that devastating scene at the dinner table when they all just kind of crack and Tony Collette gives that like, I am your mother monologue that oh, uh, everybody very, sees. Uh, very uh, no wire hangers energy. <laughs> it's so good. Um, And then Joan invites Annie to the seance. She's like, I, you need to do this because I can contact my, my dead grandchild by doing this. Um, and it works. Like it's it like it's just straight like floating chalk writes I love you grandma on the board and she was like you need to do one of these that contacts Charlie and then Annie starts to have these sleepwalking incidents where she hallucinates Peter dead and then accidentally tells him that she tried to have a miscarriage and she was pregnant with him and she says these nightmares where her family members are covered in paint thinner and she lights a match and then uh like it just all of these and like at first it they seem unrelated. It doesn't stop, and they start. They seem unrelated. Like this is just like very intense processing of grief. But then when the payoff, when you realize what's going on, it all makes sense. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. It is like it, it's exactly that. It's it's playing into the like uh, grief stricken flashes of images. I think like even the end of like Neon Genesis, Genesis Evangelion, where you have all these 
slightly related flashes of imagery that all eventually come together. This one, it happens so quick that you're like, oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. And then by the end of it, you're like, okay, these are all connected. It doesn't take time for that connection to become clear, which is so cool. Yeah, so basically... Everything starts to unravel and it gets more and more horrifying until Annie realizes that her mother was basically like, I don't want to say like a witch, but like a cult leader of some kind. Um, and she had intended for this demon called King Payman to occupy the body of one of her children and it had to be a male child. So she used Charlie as kind of like an incubator for Payman and that clucking noise Charlie would make indicated when she was like being possessed by Payman. Um, yeah, Pavlov's Pavlov's cluck. Yeah, exactly. And um, so when Charlie died, uh, Payman went to Peter, um, which because like there's a scene where uh, it, it says that Payman like the, the, the host has to be like broken down emotionally and physically for it to happen. So there's a scene where Peter gets like half possessed and like bashes his head against his desk and breaks his nose. Um, yeah. Again, a oh, yeah. visceral scene. Okay. Yeah. So then Annie goes up and she finds her mother's body in the attic, like surrounded by candles. Um, and then Annie tries to burn this book of Charlie's uh, drawings to end everything. Cause like, and it's so good because then like, it's also emotional closure. Um, right. But when she does it, Steve, the husband goes up in, like she tosses the book in the fire and Steve goes up in flames. And there's this yeah. amazing shot of them standing in the living room and him on fire and Annie just staring in shock um, until Payman possesses her and then she becomes blank faced. It um, is literally that that shot from Dick Tracy, but like made <laughs> artistic and interesting, yeah. like made meaningful. Um, and so then we get to the finale and it goes down. Um, so that night, Peter finds the burnt body of his dad next to the fireplace. And then he his mom chases him up to the because she's possessed. So he she like chases yeah. him up to the attic and then he sees her hanging from the ceiling, sawing at her neck with piano wire uh, in another yeah. amazing, just straight up horror shot. Um, and then this has like broken down Peter enough that he becomes fully possessed by payment and then goes up to Charlie's treehouse where he sees his grandmother's cult stark naked. And a statue of King Payman. Just out. Yeah, and a statue of King Payman with Charlie's head on top. Um, And they put the crown on Peter's head, and it's revealed that he's actually possessed by Charlie, who is also Payman. So it's not really revealed. It's like the one thing about the movie that I don't get. It's like it's it's supposed to – and obviously, you know, like decoding metaphor is not Mm -hmm. the point of artistic analysis, and we don't really need to. But I believe, anyway, that it's like the whole point is that Charlie was always uh, payment. Like Mm -hmm. that's always been the case. Uh, Yeah. Um, And that like it's just a reinforcement of this has been happening for so long. Yeah. And the film ends with um, the cult uh, going, hail payment. And then it zooms out to like this dollhouse kind of view of the treehouse. And then the movie ends. And And then the star goes over it like the Disney logo. (laughs) And it was all good. It's so good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, it, like it's about grief in the most horrendous, tragic way that you can make something about grief. Right. And it it is not about, you know, a lot of movies about grief are you like watch the characters process or, or fail to process. And mm-hmm. in that process, you get to uh, like find a more, a quote unquote, more perfect, less flawed way to do the same thing mm-hmm. about whatever you're grieving about or whatever. In this one, it literally just from start, like from start to finish is like grief, 
is horrible and terrible and it'll tear you apart. Uh, watch these people get torn apart by it. Yeah. It doesn't like present you it, like and the fact that the movie is that is meta theatrically a statement about why you should process your grief. Mm-hmm. Right. That it like you can't let it fester. But the film doesn't say that. Yeah. And there's it's nothing just the existence of the film does. There's nothing this family could have done to prevent this fate. Like, oh, right. Which might be unsatisfying for some people. But to me, and it's like you're, you're not the movie's characters aren't telling you to process your grief. The the existence of the film is. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, it's so, so good. good. Um, OK, so now I want to talk about Midsommar, which um, let's do it. Came out in 2019, which I think like right now I would call my favorite horror movie just ever. Um, yeah. It's just so good. Uh, it stars Florence Pugh, uh, again, giving the performance of a lifetime. No Oscar nomination. When will the Academy direct uh, respect horror movies? Never. Um, Never. I, I talked about her performance in that, like, it uh, in acting school, you talk a lot about, like, crying and whether it's a thing that, like, you should be able to do on command or whether it's, like, just kind of a cheap trick that a lot of actors <laughs> use. Um, she utilizes crying in such a fascinating way as an actress like she a lot of people like prepare for crying scenes for like 20 30 minutes and then that way when the cameras start rolling you are already like at the peak of your cry so that you can just kind of break into it Mm -hmm. she is able to just like pull you along through the entire process of crying it's so incredible uh yeah it starts her so good uh jack rayner william jackson harper of the good place fame um Vil- I'm going to hope I pronounce his name right. Wilhelm Blumgren. Uh, yeah, probably. And uh, Will Poulter. Uh, and it follows uh. a. <laughs> I know. As soon <laughs> as I saw him on screen, eyebrows. I was like, it's that guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it follows a group of American. I think they're grad school students. They're working on a thesis. So yeah. at least some of them are uh, who traveled with their Swedish friend to his home commune, a neo-pagan cult that celebrates a Midsommar festival every 90 years. Uh, all the while, our main character, Danny, deals with the death of her entire family and a relationship that she has no emotional investment in anymore. And neither does her boyfriend. Um yeah. And this, I think, is really the epitome of like the anti-catharsis where you you still get the catharsis and the relief of like facing the trauma, but you feel icky about it at the end. Like yeah, you feel gross. I, I, I don't like we talked about this. I I don't know what it is about this film that like I think I said about 40, maybe 30 minutes before the end. I was like, is this movie just going to be unabashedly pro cult? Like, is that just what's going to mm-hmm. happen? And I was so in it. I was in for that. <laughs> and at the end, I kind of it kind of like was like As, yeah, that's there, a, there's a I felt catharsis watching this movie and I didn't feel bad about the catharsis afterwards. If that's like, the big that thing about just, this film is I think a lot of people t- like t- take it as pro cult. But um, her at the ending and if you if you read the script, too, it says something like that, like she smiles like and a smile that can only be smiled by like someone who is like giving themselves up to insanity um that right. it's the whole right. idea of of what cults are is that of, you're gonna feel held and loved and you're gonna feel like you're being supported and facing your trauma um maybe even more than you are by your friends and family especially when you have friends and fam- family that's dead and friends that are so empty and void of empathy as the people that she's traveling with are um but in the end it's still a cult that is controlling what she thinks oh for sure mm-hmm. i just 
I, like, and I, I don't mean it in the kind of like, dude, bro, I gotcha. This movie's pro cult way. I mean, right. like the structure of the film and the way that we are presented with the characters uh, kind of like be, because the the meme of like, do you feel held mm-hmm. is, you know, not just talking about the uh, romantic relationship she's in, but also about the family that she's not lost and whether she can have a new family in this cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and keep going back. Like that's never... one of the words that triggers her panic attacks when, like, Pele says, right. "Like this is my family," and she realizes that she doesn't have one. Right, and at the end, there there are obviously like there are moments in towards the end where there are beats that seem like they're saying, "Oh, look, remember, it's still a cult, and there's stuff that's wrong with that." Um, and obviously, there's stuff wrong with with cults. <laughs> You're um, coming off weirdly like, pro cult. <laughs> right, 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 right. But in the journey of specifically Danny, like, which is what the movie is about, mm-hmm. um, which kind of gets into the kind of inherent problems with trying to take on big, and it doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means it's very difficult to take on big systemic uh, problems or or issues through the lens of uh, a film in a film culture that is generally individualistic by nature because we are following usually one person's story at least primarily so like for danny like we see moments of she uh thinks she has this family but then that family in some way betrays her by allowing her boyfriend to inseminate a girl who put her pubic hair into his food um But that that betrayal is uh, presented at a time in the movie where we kind of feel like even if she doesn't know it, she has grown past him. Um, And the other moment that I think of is at the end during the burning. And, you know, we'll 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 get to this. Yeah. um, That the two members that have that sacrifice themselves begin to scream that Mm -hmm. they still feel pain, whatever you uh, either anesthetic or poison or whatever is not effective. It's mm-hmm. just something that they tell themselves to think that they're giving them a painless death when yeah. they're actually not. Um, and then the cult starts to like scream and and wail so that they're sharing the pain with the people in the uh, pyramid. Like those are all meant to be moments that are like, hey, not as good as you thought. <laughs> you thought we were going to be totally pro cult, but turns out there's still stuff wrong. And I just don't know if that that tracks in the kind of emotional journey Danny's put through. Like, uh, like while the script says, like, a smile that you can only have if you've given into insanity, like, I would argue that the kind of uh, another main thrust of this film is that there's another form of insanity that comes from the kind of system outside of this commune uh, that is super bad and doesn't treat mental illness correctly mm-hmm. or well enough or um, uh, doesn't uh, provide people with the kind of emotional or mental support that they need and uh, feels as though communities like this are other enough that they can be exploited for academic uh, auditories or, or whatever. Shut up, Siri. I'm trying to talk. Um <laughs> I just think that it's much, much more complicated than most of the kind of discourse about it is, which, of course, that's all art and that's all internet discourse. Yeah. But I came out of this feeling pretty good for her because, yeah, she may be crazy, but at least she, like, came by it honestly, I guess. Yeah, we'll talk about the whole, like, good for her thing, too, when we get towards the the, the end of it. But, like, let's... um. 
let's dive into the the movie a little bit more. Um, sure. Ari Aster has also said that uh, he based the, a lot of the film on a difficult breakup that he had, which is very apparent. It, the film feels like a toxic breakup, a like horrible, not well done toxic breakup. Um, yeah. And it's also a folk horror movie, like being based around a lot of like, or at least in the aesthetic of tradition and folklore. Um, and it takes place almost entirely in bright, sunny, colorful scenes that are nonetheless horrendous, but um, they do yeah. it like super well, as well as like movies like The Wicker Man did it. So the film it starts off with the death of Danny's family and a, a murder suicide by her sister. Uh, and she is, of course, traumatized by it. Uh, while her like emotionally detached boyfriend Christian tries to help, even though his Fails friends have yeah has been have been telling him to break up with her because he's not in it anymore either. Um, right. And then months later, Danny is still dealing with her trauma, and she finds out that Christian is traveling uh, with his friends Mark, Josh, uh, to the home Mark and Josh to the home country of their friend Pele in Sweden for the Midsommar Festival. Uh, the commune is called the Harga, and then Christian invites her after she finds out about it because he feels bad. Um, right, and then Pele has a moment with her that's like, "No, actually, I'm very glad you're going." Yeah, there is a kind of like. And again, I think it's like supposed to parallel the cultishness of yeah. Harga that these like uh, Christian has a moment where he's like, oh, I invited her just because. But she's going to say, no, like, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. um, like assuming that she is going to kind of conform to the social mores that sh quote unquote should be in place. And then you have a moment where Pele is like, no, actually, I'm very glad you're coming. Yeah. Um, and she ends up coming anyway. Yeah. But in that as well, Pele is doing what any introductory member to a cult would by initiating her by oh, trying. Absolutely. Like he says, like my uh, later on when he talks to her, he's like, my parents are dead, too. And like, I know how you're feeling. And like, I think this is going to be good for you. And I want you to do this with me very right. much. Right. But that's what, not just a cult thing. That's it's also not what no, somebody no, no, no. might it's do not if they just were genuinely. A cult thing. <laughs> yeah. It's not that's just a, a thing they cult another... <laughs> Yeah. That's another thing that the film is definitely making a point of is that like as odd and as kind of wacky as Har uh, Harga is portrayed, it the kind of tactics used are not uncommon in normal life. Right. It's just that under circum certain circumstances utilized by certain people, even people in not quote unquote like weird Swedish cults, but also like Scientology is yeah, like exactly. the same. Um, yeah. Um, but so uh, they travel to Sweden uh, she has like several panic attacks on the plane and on the way there. Oh my God, the and, shot. Yeah. This is my favorite shot in the whole movie where she uh, starts to have a panic attack when Pele is talking to her in the apartment when they're talking about going to Sweden. And she's like, no, I probably won't come. And he's like, no, you should come. And she's like, okay, I need to, I need to leave and starts to have a panic attack and runs into the bathroom. The cut that happens is like as the door closes, as she's in the bathroom, it cuts to her face uh, coming up from the sink and we see she's in an airplane bathroom. Yeah. Like it's that. So good. It, oh my God, it is so good. Um, it is such an incredible shot. Yeah. And uh, they arrive in Sweden and they meet up with some of Pele's friends and they take mushrooms, um, which is not only a great scene cinematically with the way they do, like you, you see like psychedelic trips in movies all the time. This one's pretty yeah. well done 
done like I've, I've never straight up never taken magic mushrooms but from what i have heard yeah. that this is pretty similar to what an actual trip would be like but this also is where the movie gets into some weird instances of humor that we don't get in hereditary like oh my um, god yeah well, so when they're all tripping and mark who is kind of like the comedic relief character he's like the fool <laughs> um he's they're all sitting on the hill and mark they, they see <laughs> this old man walking towards them in the distance and there's a shot of him too that you think like oh this old man like we're about to it's get into horror, horror yeah this old man is about to come do something to them and mark starts freaking out he's like i can't have a new person i can't have a new person right now and the this old man finally gets to them and he just goes hi hi and he keeps walking yeah and mark has this moment where he's like can everybody lie down i'm just gonna lie down and then he lies down and then he opens his eyes and he goes can you need to lie down it's like so funny. it's funny and you kind of feel like bad for laughing because of everything else that's going on but it's funny yeah yeah and the the again on the visual effects they are just like very subtle uh spirals going on uh mm -hmm. outside of the focal uh point of the shot and it's oh it's so interesting yeah. again like adam and i are probably the two nyu students the least <laughs> equipped to talk about how accurate any yeah. kind of uh drug <laughs> is in any film because we're the most milk toast vanilla boys who love jesus and hate drugs of all of them <laughs> Um, but so but yeah, they it, also apparently it's good. They also meet Simon and Connie in this scene, who are an English couple that were brought by Pele's brother uh, Ingmar. Um, and they arrive at the commune, and it seems really lovely. It's like all these wooden buildings and these fields of flowers. There's children and playing. Gorgeous architecture. Yeah, they get food and drinks. Um, and we also get a couple more instances of that weird comedy, like when they're walking by and they see a bear in a cage and Mark goes oh like, God. what's up with the bear? And Ingmar goes, it's a bear. <laughs> it's a bear. And Ezra multiple times, and I did it too, throughout the movie was like, okay, the bear's going to come eat that person now. Okay, that no, the bear's going to, and then there is a payoff for the bear and it's whack. Yeah. Um, the, uh, also the scene that like we arrive at the commune, the like, uh, they, they set up. This movie, again, like like how Hereditary is a family drama, this mm -hmm. is set up as like a relationship drama, like yeah. a romantic drama, because you meet Simon and Connie and they're very clearly in a normal movie would just serve as a like model to uh, Danny as like an actual caring relationship mm -hmm. that went that should uh, teach her that her boyfriend's a big poop. And uh, Pele also has that uh, like he's supposed to represent somebody who actually cares for her. In a very clearly, like, very thinly veiled indictment of the, like, he's just a sweet boy who wants to, like, save her from the mean, mean man, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, stupid and misogynistic, and the movie knows that, and also that move is not one to save her from yeah. this poop man. It's to bring her into a cult. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we also get another instance of the weird, like not only the bear humor, but when they all get into, like they get into the big place where they sleep and like they, uh, up till then Pele has been the only one, who, Pele and Ingmar have been the only ones who speak English. Um, So they've been translating for like the elders and stuff. And uh, they get in and they're looking around this gorgeous uh, room where all the beds are. And this girl comes in to all the Americans and she's like, the children are in the barn watching Austin Powers. If you want oh, to yeah. Join the children are watching Austin Powers, which is ugh. the question is, are they watching Spy of Shagmi or are they watching Goldmember? Yeah, that's uh, that's or are they watching the first one that I didn't uh, International know Man of Mystery. Oh, sure. <laughs> OK, so, uh, yeah, the next. However. Oh uh, yeah, Christian also forgets Danny's birthday. Peller 
Pele gives her a drawing oh of herself. Yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, I only do this for birthdays, which we see later is not true because he's like drawing. Not true. Um, and then Christian realizes that he forgot and gives her like a lame slice of cake in a very good, just well acted scene. Oh, it's so good. Um, and then the next day, the group witnesses one of the Hargo's traditions, the Arashtupa, which um, in any member of the commune over the age of 72 throws themselves off a cliff as that is seen as the end of life in the Hargo society. They say like, oh, you're in your 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 summer, your spring, your fall and your winter. And when you reach the end of your winter, you have to die. Um and so the woman, the, a woman and a man have to do it. The woman throws herself and dies on impact, but the man survives yeah. and breaks both of his legs. Yeah, because she has good form. <laughs> to be clear, she goes head first, which is obviously the way you do it. The man, the second that he jumped off, Ezra and I were like, he's not going to die. What the hell? That's, why would you do that? The but, whole point. And as as you're about to talk about, like, uh, they, the, the commune members, when he falls, start to wail, which is a thing that comes back later, that mm-hmm. they're like sharing his pain, right? Yeah. That they're showing empathy. And then somebody comes forward, comes forward and smashes his head with a big wooden mallet. Uh, and it's wild. And Danny starts to have a panic attack. And uh, Simon and Connie start to go wild. And yeah. like, they just killed themselves. Uh, and one of the elder woman, women tries to calm them down. And it's like, this is a cherished tradition they literally and and this is again it's a great it honor a very, to do this it's yeah and it is a great uh like moment in like in the film where there is a kind of acknowledgement that there are uh cultural traditions that are we uh, that are odd to certain people mm-hmm. and would be seen as somehow uh cruel or wrong and that are actually when you think about it and you talk to the people who do it it is not that um and like I would put this one, <laughs> I would put this one in the okay part of the camp. Like I'm sure that if the people at Hargo were real, they would find it disgusting and cruel to have like euthanasia and do it through like injection or turning off a uh, a a machine. That that is just as disgusting to them. And I think somebody uh, Christian says this, but it yeah. is very clearly. I, I have a lot of feelings about Christian and that he is too excusatory of the cult stuff yeah. in a in a dismissive way. Um, but this dismissal at least makes some sense that they probably think it's disgusting to leave elders to just age in old homes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what I think actually gets the, the explanation really right is like they, there's a child who's just been born and that baby has the same name as one of the elders who's just died. Like mm-hmm. this is a very genuine belief that you are passing your spirit on to that next person. Uh, which is just like a, it's a it's a neat moment. Yeah, and um, I love that the movie brings this up because I imagine that this is a thought any like normal audience member of this movie would be having of like this is true that we like we say that like we don't want to put uh, push our cultural traditions on another culture, but on the other hand, like people are dying. Like I love that the movie brings it up instead of just like leaving it in like the right. subtext for like the audience to decide they openly discuss it and also leave it for annoying video essayists on youtube to complain about um so uh pele attempts to comfort danny in the do you feel held by him scene which again great scene and in a romance in like a normal like relationship drama movie would be the scene where like she would start to see that like she belongs to somebody like pele instead of christian but again is it just another cult tactic that pele and whether or not pele actually has feelings for her is up for debate um right because Throughout the movie, he does seem quite genuine, but then, like, we find out at the end that he his job was to lure people to the cult so they could become sacrifices, which, not to get ahead of ourselves, we'll get to that. 
Um, but right. I also like that the movie kind of leaves that open to talk about too. Like obviously he is luring her with the cult stuff, but maybe he does also in addition have feelings for her. Um, right. And it, and it's kind of portrayed as like him not being particularly effective. Like he obviously found her and brought her there and she becomes the May Queen and that's really mm-hmm. good. But there's the moment that I think Danny like gives in and is like, oh, wait, I do feel held is not a moment with Pele. It's the moment uh, after she's walked in on Christian uh, towards the end of the film and is then held by the, the group of girls who like start yes. to wail with her. Which is my favorite um, scene in the movie, which we'll talk about it's it when such we a good, get to it's it. It's such a good it's scene. So good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but so, we can keep going. Yeah, so Josh begins uh, his uh, work on his thesis on the Harga, and then Christian decides to pick a same, the same topic, so they have like an academic Dick rift move. between them. And I yeah. think Josh and says, like, you don't even know how to use JSTOR, which is very funny. <laughs> and Josh and, and Christian are such well-done characters. Yeah. Like, I really think that Josh is, like, the character with whom most people are like, oh, that guy kind of makes sense. Like, he obviously spent a long time, mm-hmm. like, researching this stuff, and he knows what the uh, Atastupa is before yeah. uh, they do it. And, but he doesn't tell them, and, which is a very telling yeah, of his character. Yes. And you also have the sense that he genuinely cares about, like, the the commune's feelings about him doing his work mm-hmm. um, and wanting to do it respectfully. Yeah. And then Until. the second that somebody else says... I'm going to do that too, which to be fair, Christian is doing it in a totally, again, too yeah. dismissive, too excusatory, kind of gross, oh, this is just a neat place, I'm going to reap it for a, for a thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, then he's like, oh, actually, this is my thing, yeah. so screw you. It is like too, you would think that if they were going to have a character that was, or they wanted to talk about the academic intrusion upon certain cultural institutions, that there would be one character who did the thing that Christian did, but they did two of them, both being in the wrong, but in totally different yeah. ways. And it, that's just, it is so fascinating. Yeah, and also at this time, Simon and Connie try to leave, but an elder tells Connie that Simon has left without her. They were like, oh, there's only room oh in the truck God. for one, so we took Simon, and we're going to take you now. Um, so Connie initially, like rightfully, is like, this like this doesn't feel right, but then she's eventually yeah. convinced by the elder, just like, don't worry, like get your stuff, and we'll drive you to the train station. Um, and then later on, we hear a woman screaming in the distance, and we never see Connie again. That be her. Uh, meanwhile, Mark unknowingly the film. pees Best on the ancestral the tree. <laughs> he pisses on the tree where all of the ancestors' ashes are buried. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and the the thing that makes me love it so much is that Mark Mark is played by I forget his name. Oh, uh, Will Poulter. But he's. He's the guy who is the bad kid in every single teen drama yeah, yeah, ever yeah, yeah, yeah. from the early 2000s. And he's got very annoying eyebrows. And he's got the <laughs> face, the kind of face, and he knows it. And he's a very good actor um, who you're just like, I hate you when you see him. He's and vaping in like every feel. scene. Like the elders are talking oh to him God. and he's like vaping. <laughs> he's vaping. And he, uh, he feeds on this tree. And a normal person, even arguably Mark earlier in the film, mm-hmm. Would have said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I peed on that tree. I didn't yeah. know. But because this is Will Poulter and he <laughs> wants to have a moment, he's like, I didn't know. 
Why did you, it's just a tree. I pissed on the tree. What do you want from me? It's dead. Look at it. It's a dead tree. Who the fuck cares? It's so good. It's so good. Um. Yes. And then so later on, he incites the fairy of the commune, and later on, he's lured by one of the woman women of the commune away during a meal, which is also another weird, funny line because she like tells him to come, and he's like, "What?" And she goes, "I'll show you." And he turns. He goes, "I'll be right back." She's gonna show me. And She's gonna show me. Please. <laughs> and then we never see Mark again until yeah. uh, Josh sneaks off to take a picture of a sacred text that he was previously told not to um, because he's trying yeah. to get like a one up on Christian now. Um, and then somebody bursts right. into and the temple where it is and he thinks it's Mark. But then when he gets closer, we see it as somebody wearing Mark's clothes and skinned face. And then he bludgeons uh, Josh to death and drags his body away. Yeah. And it is not just someone. It is very clearly a person who's named who I don't remember their name. Yeah, but I didn't put it in the referred to as like the the oracle, who yeah, yeah, is yeah. a person who helps write the sacred script mm-hmm. that they keep, and they are a deliberate product of incest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I think it leads wild. to like an unclouded mind or something, right? Right. Um, which I mean, I would argue probably more of a clouded mind. <laughs> I would say, generally, those born of incest probably slightly more clouded than, than other people. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they're fine. Um, but the, uh, the, the whole sequence, it, it feels very traditional horror movie. You see yes. him speak with the elder and read the text and say, can I take a picture? And he goes, no, of course not. Why would you say that? And you go, he goes, oh, okay, sure. And you immediately are like, oh, he's going to try to take a picture, isn't he? Yeah, that's, I think, the one thing where, like, that's a straightforward, dumb horror movie decision. Yeah, for sure. He almost gets away with it, but then he doesn't. He almost gets away for it if it weren't for that that pesky oracle. Yeah, so um, the next day, with Mark and Josh and Simon and Connie all missing, um, Danny is given more psychedelics and ends up winning a maypole dancing competition where they basically get super high on the psychedelics and they have to, like, dance around in circles until they fall down and the last one standing is crowned the May Queen. Um, which Adam, you and I have talked a lot about it. It's not how we I do was the like, maypole. <laughs> no, but I was also like, oh, they're not actually doing a maypole dance. Mm-mm. Uh, and then they started to do the, do the, do the like spinning thing. And I was like, oh, they are doing a maypole dance. Yeah. If they don't it's do like, the ribbons, oh, this does feel very familiar. But, yeah. That's um, sad. So anyhow, uh, so she, this is a cause for a great celebration. And Pelle kisses her. He's like, wow, you're the May Queen. And like kisses her and the whole commune's celebrating. Yeah. She doesn't understand like what she just did or why it's so good. But so they give her this flower crown and they take her to bless the crops while Christian is also given drugs. And then another weird scene of comedy where he's like sitting at the table high out of his oh mind God. on these psychedelics. Oh, and he yes. turns to an old man and he goes, excuse me, like, what's going on? And the old man claps in his face and Christian goes, <laughs> why would you do that? Why would you do that? Ezra talked about that scene throughout the movie. And it's like, when does this see- when does this happen? It's the best part. Um, it's so, so good. And the, the storyline of the thing that's about to happen is we saw at some point this like ritual uh, shown on a blanket, mm-hmm. uh, wherein uh, like we, we see this kind of sequence of events and all these things you're supposed to do. And then we're shown that somebody put a rune underneath uh, Christian's bed, this girl. And uh, Josh asks, Josh keeps it from him uh, because he wants to know, he wants to like academic reason for it mm-hmm. without actually pissing off Christian and asks Pele and Pele's like, oh, it's a love rune. Somebody's trying to, you know, get in on uh get it on Christian and it's portrayed as like a young woman doing silly stuff yeah without without 
like knowing that this is a cult, but it's not really magic. It won't actually work. And then it works. Yeah. Well, uh, because Christian is given psychedelics and assaulted, right. basically, he's because yeah, he, yeah. he's coerced into this sex ritual with with this woman named Maja, who um, in order to get her pregnant and they have sex while some of the other women dance uh, naked around them while it's happening. And at one point they like is- she comes around behind him and she like pushes his butt to like make him yeah. like to and help him um yeah and it seems like that's also after the same woman who seems to be like maja's mother mm -hmm. which is super wild uh like holds her face it is just it is a surreal scene it is the scene it's so surreal that you forget almost and i think that's where this like good for her thing comes at the end because not that like christian is not a a terrible stink garbage diaper man but he is right, effectively assaulted in this scene. Right. Um, and He's you still almost, that almost does not your brain because be. of how buckwild everything else is that's going on. Right. And it really seems like the moment at which, I mean, you know, in during the Maypole scene mm-hmm. that you're like, you're starting to go down this spiral of like, okay, stuff's getting wild. And then that scene, that scene serves as, again, this kind of tone shift of like, this is about to go crazy and I'm not going to give you any runway to get ready. Yeah. Um, and then when Danny discovers this, of course, like, I, we don't know if she knows that Christian has been drugged, but she has a panic attack um, and is comforted by some of the other women who, li- like, get on the ground with her and wail with her in sympathy in my favorite scene of the movie as they, they like, breathe yeah. in and out with her and wail with her, um, which I think yeah. is honestly, like, one of her, her – it's her breaking point um, right. where, like, nobody's de- – like – of course, nobody's literally wailed in, sim- in in sympathy with her before, but like nobody has quote supported her like this before because it's not real support, but it's like nobody has right, but it, done yeah, something is, like this. Nobody has tried to feel what she's feeling before. Even Pele like yeah. says he has, but she hasn't seen evidence of it. Right. It is. Yeah. It is like it is the moment that like Tish School of Drama would have called like all of your walls are now broken down. Yeah. And. And you're kind of getting rebuilt back up. And it is, again, it's something that like the 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 effort of like wailing and sympathy is something that is so that it's almost it's a like uh, it's this idea of that that a lot of people have, especially nowadays, especially not to dunk on y'all, but liberals have this feeling that they can feel exactly what every single other person is feeling. And that's enough. Uh, and uh it, it is almost a parody of that uh, presented as some odd tradition of a cult, which yeah. is just it's so it, it is probably my favorite scene in the movie as well. Um, so and wait, and before you come for me, uh, I need to be very clear. <laughs> I'm not saying liberals uh, because you guys are to the left of me. That would be whack. Yeah, that you would guys be whack. To, to the, you, you guys are to the right of me. That's why it's a whole thing. That would be a terrible anyway. thing to drop on episode 47. Um, anyway. 47 we reveal <laughs> Um, so after the ritual, uh, Christian kind of like comes down from his high and tries to run away naked, um, only to discover, and apparently like in the script, he had like put his clothes back on, but, uh, Jack Rayner was like, this should be naked. Like I should do this naked. And Ari Aster was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't have had the time. Like, why would he put back on his clothes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Only to discover that Simon, uh, Simon in a barn who has been turned into a blood eagle, which if you don't know, was like an alleged like Viking punishment. We don't actually have evidence that they did it, but they might have where like the back split open and the spine is out and you're hanging up and it's very bloody. He's got flowers in his eyes. 
Um, and then he also sees Josh's leg poking out of the ground near some crops. Um, and some people have also pointed out that they think that they can see Simon breathing in this scene um, in an inclination yeah. to be maybe being kept alive somehow. I don't know. Like, I, I don't, don't know either. how you it, could it's... be kept alive during this, but... Yeah, I think it's supposed to be left uh, possible because it's also like the the kind of energy of him being splayed out like this is that he's also in some way feeding the animals. Yes. Right? That the animals are serving as, uh, like, he is literally serving as a feed trough for these animals. And I think the idea is, like, he might be still alive in a way that's, like, he will be able to keep providing food, mm-hmm. and like, without going, like, rotten. Yeah. Um, and then Christian the is anyway. caught by an elder and paralyzed by him. Um, yeah, with with, with just drug, some right? with just some dust. Yeah, like, he like with, blows dust with, in his face, like, and Christian becomes paralyzed. Yeah, and Ezra immediately went, "If that was paralyzing dust, you wouldn't put that that close to your face to blow it at somebody." That's fair. I was like, I mean, that's fair. Um, so the once Danny is back from blessing the crops and is the the commune all comes back together. Uh, to tell Danny that the festival concludes with nine human sacrifices. Uh, four of them must be outsiders. So Mark, Josh, Simon, and Connie. And we see them loading their bodies onto like uh, um, a wheelbarrow. And we see um, like Connie's kind of like water bloated. So they probably drowned her. Like I think the theory is that yeah. like, they tied her up and drowned her in the river. Um, and then also they put a jester hat on Mark, which is like yeah. yep. <laughs> adding insult yep. to injury. And it belongs. Uh, yeah, so the f- first four must be outsiders lured by members, so these were lured by both Pele and Ingmar, uh, while the next four must be members of the commune, so the two that jumped, and then two that volunteer for the privilege, um, one of them being Ingmar, who volunteers to have himself sacrificed, and then Danny gets to choose the ninth victim, either Christian or another villager, and we don't see her make the choice, which, like, but we all know. The selfish part of me wishes that we did, but I know just for the movie, they didn't need to show us her making the choice, yeah. but I wanted to see it. But so she chooses Christian, uh, who is still paralyzed, and they stuff him inside that disemboweled bear. bear that we see earlier. Um, I thought that when he was being like seduced and put into the the not seduced, assaulted, and put into the building with Maja. Mm-hmm. I thought there. I thought the bear was going to come and maul him. I thought they were done with him. They were wow. just going to kill him. But no. Because, the like, I knew he, like, for some reason, I said it, like, maybe 20 minutes into the movie. I was like, he's the bear. Like, that's him. Mm-hmm. And then and then he ended up in, in the bear. Yeah. He ended up as the bear. Um, so, yeah, they put him into this disemboweled brown bear, and they place in this uh, temple that we saw earlier, this yellow triangle temple, which I have a sticker of on my laptop, um, along with the bodies of Josh, Simon, Connie, and Mark, and then the two live sacrifices. And like Devin said, they give them this U under their tongue to, Y-E-W, uh, under their tongue yeah. to, like, they tell them, like, so you won't feel any pain. We find out that that's not true, because yeah. when they set the temple aflame... One of them starts screaming in pain when the flame reaches him, and Ingmar realizes, like, oh, the U does nothing. Um, yep. And on the outside, the commune members mimic the cries and screams of those alive inside, and Danny initially starts sobbing and panics in absolute horror. And she's in this big flower dress, like, huge yeah, dress made of flowers. Trapped. And she's, like, crawling yeah. across the ground in this big flower dress as she's sobbing. And then she, like, looks back and she gradually, like, begins to break into this smile. And that is the end of the movie. Yeah. And at the end of that movie, I was like, I feel good about this. <laughs> good for her. Yeah. My thing about the good for her thing is that 
like I get it as like a joke of like good for her because yeah. you do kind of feel that. But my yeah. problem with it is that like I wouldn't want people to mistake what Danny received from the Harga as actual emotional support because it wasn't. Oh, it was manipulation. Sure. Um, right. And that I, might I make that... you feel like you were supported, but they're just bending and twisting you past your breaking points so that you will accept whatever for the sure. cult wants you to do. And yeah. And the phrase good for her is like a purposeful, uh, like de nuance mm-hmm. of, of the film. Like yeah. it's like, that's kind of, yeah. Yeah. I think we all know that that is a good, good goof that we all do. <laughs> ah, I adore this movie. Um, yeah. Hopefully that you've already watched these. If you've made it to the end and you didn't have it all spoiled for you. Um, but even if you did go back and watch them, if you haven't seen them they're again, they're very dark, very intense horror films, but so good. They're so good. And I cannot wait to see what Ari Aster does next. He is coming out with another movie, I think in 2022, that hasn't started production yet, but I really hope it's good as these first two. (laughs) Something tells me it will be. Uh, We have gone long on this episode, so we're going to end it there. Uh, Go and watch them. They're very good. But if you enjoyed this episode of The Great American Scream, you can leave a rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or, you know, leave a review wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And the best way to spread the word about the show, which we would really appreciate if you did, is to tell a friend. Adam, can you pimp our social medias, please? Uh, Yes, you can follow us on Facebook at The Great American Scream or uh, more frequently on Twitter and Instagram at Great Scream Pod. Um, Let us know if you enjoyed uh, like this kind of like film analysis-y episode like this. Um, They will not be this long in the future because I imagine if we do it again, we won't be covering two movies. We'll do one movie, yeah. (laughs) Um, We'll just do one movie. But if you like this, let us know. And if you didn't like it, you can let us know too. No problem. Um, you can tweet at us or post using the hashtag TGAS. And as always, if there is something that you would like to hear about on the show, let us know because uh, your suggestion may become a topic for a future episode. Yeah. And special thank yous, as always, go out to Michael Segudo for doing our disclaimer, Stevie Viola for doing our intro and outro music, and to our patrons. Thank you to Ben, Eric, Casper, Bree, Gail, Joyce, Brucker, Melinda, and Chris. Yes, and uh, thank you, patrons who sent us pictures of your stickers. Somebody took their sticker to a graveyard, like put it on their water bottle <laughs> and took it to a graveyard. Very metal sick. of you. Very cool. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, enjoy the stickers. Enjoy the graveyards. I've been Devin Wright. I've been Adam O'Connell. And hopefully you have been spooked. And hopefully you feel held in hopefully a you feel real held. way. <laughs> And if you're going to go to a graveyard with our very cool stickers, how are you going to do it, Adam? Oh, please do it safely. Please, God. (laughs) 